podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the Church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Mark Bearden on the topic of church revival. Mark is a staff revivalist with Life Action Ministries. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2014 General Assembly. Let's listen as Mark teaches how to move church members from the sideline to the front lines of your church. So let me show you a little bit about Life Action Ministries and, and uh, so you'll understand the, the direction I'm coming from. And, and first of all, let me just say this. Uh, I encountered God in a radical way at the age of 19. Uh, God began working in my heart at, at about 14, drawing me. I went through a process. I made several kind of commitments to the Lord, things like that. But at 19, the only way I can describe it is, uh, from that moment, I quit trying to drive it. It's driven me. I had an encounter with God that radically changed my life, and I was simultaneously called to ministry. I got up from that encounter not only, and, and the, the only thing I remember about it is, I mean, God dealt with a lot of sin that was in my life because I was in rebellion. By the way, I had a grandmother praying for me to surrender to ministry. Uh, I'd never told her, but she, had, she believed God was calling me, and she was praying for me to surrender to that. But the only thought that ran through my mind was, this sense, overwhelming sense of shame that I could ever say no to God. How, who was I to have said no to God? And I remember just weeping as God just broke me. And uh, so, I, I mean, I was radically changed. And what shocked me was when I, when I got into church then and got around guys who I had watched in high school and they were in church and what kind of set them apart was kind of a different morality from mine. I didn't really know them well. But what shocked me was when I got in there, how few of them were really passionate about the things of the Lord. And I was. I, it was what happened to me. It's all I wanted to talk about. And I was shocked because I, I didn't, I, that's what I expected. I thought everybody was going to be like that. And I got into church and it just, it wasn't the case. And it was kind of a rude awakening to me. By the way, just as an aside, uh, my dad, my parents divorced when I was three. My dad is a retired uh, PUSA Presbyterian minister, uh, was the first non-Scottish pastor of First Presbyterian in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, my parents divorced when I was three, and he remarried, and really we've had very little interaction, unfortunately, over the years. And so I, I had no church background. And so I was a little rough around the edges, but I, I was hungry for the Word, and I was hungry for prayer. and. I, this is what I said to the Lord. I said, Lord, whatever ministry you put me in, I want it to be about life change. Because I know what you did to me. And, and 
from the inside out, to, to change my very desires. And that, that is something only God can do. And I, I said, whatever it is, I want it to be about life change. Well, as God began to grow me spiritually, uh, He began to expose me to the concepts of historical revival and the movements of God, the Great Awakenings, and the movements of God around the world in just extraordinary ways. And I began to long to see God move in that way, in, in an extraordinary way. And so he was preparing. I tell people when I met Life Action, it, it's like God wrote a job description on my heart, and he brought the job along to fit it. Uh, Life Action Ministries, what we do is we go into churches from anywhere from four days to ten days to two weeks. We come in with a team of people. Uh, usually it's two families. For 20 years, my family lived in a fifth-wheel trailer. Now, I did not grow up with an ambition to live in a fifth-wheel trailer. Uh, I wanted to be a baseball player, and if that didn't work, I wanted to be a lawyer. God called me elsewhere. Uh, but two families come in, and then about 20 college-ish-age students who uh, are singers, children's ministers, technicians, we come in with a semi-truck, we come in with our trailers, with a bus, and for about, depending on the, the nature of the meeting, from anywhere from four days to two weeks, we, we live in the church, we, well, we live in, with families, and uh, we just go through principles of, of sanctification and a deeper walk with the Lord based on the principles of historical revival. Now, let me, let me give you a definition, or not a definition, but a quote from uh, Jonathan Edwards. He said, from the fall of man until this day wherein we live, the work of redemption and its effect has mainly been carried on by the remarkable outpourings of the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to think about that. From I was talking to a, a dear brother yesterday uh, from Charlotte, and, and he was sharing about one of, uh, I don't know if it was one of your speakers here or one of the professors talking about in the process of sanctification that there's steps and then jumps. <laughs> and... Uh, he said, if you had nothing but jumps, you'd get emotionally exhausted. If you had nothing but steps, you'd get discouraged. And what's interesting about that is, what Jonathan Edwards is saying is, there's, there's the faithfulness of preaching the Word and teaching the Word that we do. But there are those divine moments where God accelerates things, and He shows up in a divine way. Now, I believe very strongly that that is a sovereign work of God. Having said that, there are certain principles that we've seen over the years that manifest themselves. Uh, I like what uh, Matthew Henry said. He said, when God is preparing his people for a mercy, he sets them praying. And when God wants to do an unusual work in a church, the first thing he will do is begin to set his people praying for an unusual work in the church. Uh, let me give you a, a definition for revival now. And you'll wonder how this is tying in to about getting your church members on the front line, and, and I'll tie this all together in just a moment. This is a compilation of some uh, deep men of God. Uh, if you, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Richard Owen Roberts. Not Richard Roberts. <laughs> Richard Owen Roberts. He's probably the greatest uh, scholar alive today on the history of revival. Lives in Wheaton, Illinois. But revival, this is kind of based on, on his definition, but revival is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in an extraordinary and sustained way which produces repentance among believers and draws the lost to salvation. So it's an extraordinary work. It is not, it's not the normal. It's when God works in an extraordinary way. Now that's revival with a capital R. There's also revival with a small r. And that's what God does in the individual's heart. And so the principles we teach as a ministry, we teach 
to, to try to facilitate revival with a small R in people's hearts. And revival with a big R, Lord willing, will come as God chooses. And there's been divine moments over, I've been in Life Action Ministries for 25 years, where our founder used to pray, Lord, would you hijack these services? And about, you know, once or twice a year, we would have just unusual movements of God. Uh, that we didn't plan. You can't plan that anymore, and you can plan the parting of the Red Sea. But God moves in. Now, here's the thing. You have not because you ask not. And one of the reasons we don't see God do unusual moves, we simply don't ask Him for that. That's something, by the way, Jonathan Edwards prayed for regularly, is that there would be divine moments where God showed up in extraordinary ways. Part of the, the problem here is there's circles uh, of Christendom today that live for the experience and uh, really teach doctrines of the Holy Spirit that are unbiblical. And uh, I like what A.W. Tozer said. He said, the solution to the abuse of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit <laughs> because He is the Spirit of truth. And so we, we kind of draw back from asking God to do unusual works. And yet, again, you have not because you ask not. And so one of the things that I prayed when I was on the road, that there would be, you know, I understand this is in God's hands, and I'm going to faithfully teach, but God, would, would you allow there to be moments where you show up in unusual ways? I, I have a, we have five children. Uh, my oldest is 20. She's about to be married. And believe it or not, I have a three-year-old. Uh, that was a bit of a shock to our system. Uh, God opened the womb and gave us uh, a son, uh, two daughters and three sons. My oldest son is a baseball player, and uh, he's about a head shorter than anybody his age, but is just, he's a natural player. I mean, he, he didn't even start playing until he's almost 10, and just he's hit between five and 600 for three consecutive years. He, he's, he's natural hand-eye coordination. He's just a really good ball player. And I began to notice something with him that if my son, humanly speaking, has to choose between baseball, where he gets affirmation, he loves the competition, uh, he gets praise for it, he gets rewarded for it, all those kinds of things. And uh, if he has to choose between baseball and God, where do you think he's going to choose? He's instinctively going to go there. And so as a father, I began to carry a burden. And this is what I began to pray. I said, Lord, just taking him to church is not going to balance the scale. He needs, a, he needs definite encounters with you. Through your word, through conviction of sin, through whatever it is. And so I began to pray specifically that my sons, and, and now I pray for my whole family, myself included, that there would be moments of profound encounter with God in their lives. And it was amazing. About three weeks later, my son came to me just broken in tears, burdened about his younger brother's spiritual condition. About a week after that, he came to me and said, uh, Dad, would you mind if I took two weeks off of baseball and went on a mission trip? I said, buddy, not at all. <laughs> not at all. And I've seen that happen with my second son recently. He came to me. And uh, he had been at a cousin's house, and they had done something, that, or looked at something. His cousin led him kind of into it. And uh, 
you know, those are the things can remain buried and can fester in a child's heart. And he came to me just trembling under conviction for what he'd done and, and just began to weep and tell me what they had done. Well, that's an answer to prayer. I asked God to do that. I asked God to do that kind of work uh, in my kids' lives. And so when we look at revival, we're looking at the big picture, but we're also looking at, the, at that, that picture, asking God to quicken the Word. I was in years ago in Edinburgh, Scotland, and uh, sat down with a lady named Mary Peckham. Now, Mrs. Peckham was converted in the Hebrides revival off the coast of Scotland. If you know anything about the layout of Scotland off the western coast or the Hebrides Islands. In the late 1940s, uh, it was actually one of many revivals in that region. But God did a, a, a tremendous movement of revival there. And she was converted under the preaching of Duncan Campbell. And as I was talking to Mrs. Peckham and asking her questions about this movement of God, um, she said something I thought was very interesting. She grew up in a home where she was unchurched. But because of the culture of, of where she lived, she said, we memorized Scripture and we memorized the catechisms. She said, even as an unchurched family, we, that was just part of our culture. But this is what she said to me. She said, when God began to move, there was fuel to burn. Now think about that. See, your faithful preaching and teaching of the Word, it, it's kind of like stacking wood. It becomes fuel to burn. And that's what she said, because I knew Scripture and I knew the basic theological truths of the faith. She said, when the Spirit of God quickened it, there was fuel to burn. And part, part of the concern of our culture today is we are so biblically, within the church, biblically illiterate, that I fear when God begins to move, there's often not fuel to burn. <laughs> uh, I remember being at a college where God had moved in a profound way and uh, sitting down with two young men who had really encountered God, but just listening to them as they talked to me so, say so many theologically incorrect things. And I told my wife later, I wish I could live here about six months and just work with some of these students because God had definitely done a work, but there was, there was a shallowness that it was drawing from. So we're faithfully preaching the Word, but we're also asking God for those kind of moments where He, he just jumps now, you don't live on that, and I understand that, but you ask God for it. And, and again, I'll tell you some stories along the way as we go here, but there have been those, those moments where God has just shown up over the years historically and uh, in, in our ministry in, in extraordinary ways. So let me share with you. Turn, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This may sound like kind of an unusual passage for this, but uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is, is Paul's process of uh, raising the offering for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. If you remember what's happening here as he is traveling, he's gathering this offering. The Christians in Jerusalem are in a time of persecution and famine. And so he's riding ahead to the Corinthian church, urging them that when he arrives to, to be prepared with that offering. And... Paul obviously has the desire of, one, meeting the needs of those who are in need in Jerusalem, but secondly, just that desire to, to unite the Gentile and the Jewish churches, uh, the Gentile churches he was ministering in, the Jewish church primarily in Jerusalem. And so he writes to them, urging them to take up this offering, to go ahead and have it ready, and to encourage them, he's telling them about the Macedonian churches and their giving, and uh, it's churches like Thessalonica and Berea and uh, Philippi. And so 
Beginning in verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Now, stop there. Right off the bat, he says something. There is a work of God that has happened among the Macedonians. The grace of God which was bestowed. Now, the first point here, let me say something. Who does God give grace to? James 4, 6. The humble. Exactly. So what he's saying here is, and, and obviously he's not talking about salvation here. Uh, he's talking about a, a work that God did stirring their hearts for this offering. So he says, uh, I want you to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Then in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, I want to draw from this passage because th this to me is an incredible example of a people of God engaging in, in a heart for what God was doing. Not sitting back. In fact, what Paul will do is he will use them as an example to the Corinthians. And, you know, it's funny because he, a little bit with the Corinthians, he'll kind of shame them a little bit through these next couple of chapters and compare them. And, and Paul's concern was not only that they take an offering, but abundant offering. He was afraid they'd get there and it would just be a small offering and it would be an embarrassment to him. And, uh, and it would embarrass him in front of the Macedonians who were giving so radically. But he says that they, they were a people in, in a, with an abundance of joy in deep poverty. Now, many of you know that that word poverty there is an extreme word. There are two words for being poor in the New Testament. One means simply not having a lot. One means to be a destitute, to be a beggar. And that's the word that Paul uses. The word Jesus used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the beggars in spirit. And so Paul said in the midst of their poverty, deep poverty, there was this abounding joy in them. And it overflowed in this incredible gift. Now look at how he describes the gift. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability... They gave of their own accord. So here's a people of their own accord. So they initiated, they came to Paul, and in verse 4 he says, begging us with much entreaty. Let me ask you a question. Why do you have to beg somebody? Because they're telling you no, right? <laughs> so evidently Paul got here, looked around at their poverty, and decided I'm not going to take an offering here. These people are as bad off as who I'm supposed to take the offering for. So of their own initiative, they came to Paul. Now, I don't know how many... Some of you guys have been in ministry a lot longer than I have. Have you ever had anybody beg you to take an offering? That, that's what happens. They came to Paul begging him. Paul, wait a minute. We want to give. And, and verse 5 says, "...and this, not as we had expected..." But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now, I want to get back to verse 5, but turn to chapter, or verse, or chapter 1 here in 2 Corinthians. And then we'll turn right back, because I want you to see something here. Paul says that according to their ability and beyond their ability, which is, which is an, that's a hard statement to grasp. What does that mean, to give beyond your ability? Look in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. 
Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, Paul says that we got under so much pressure, he said it was beyond our strength. Now, think about what that means, beyond our ability to endure. There was a line that represented for Paul everything he could endure in his own intellect, which was massive, in the strength of his character, which was massive, in, in the strength of his integrity and who he was. I mean, he was a man who went through sufferings and beatings and endurance. He had a high capacity to endure. And Paul said, there's a line that represented everything I could endure in who I was, which was far beyond, I think, where I am. And Paul says that we were hard-pressed beyond it. In other words, there was that line that what I could endure, and God put us on the other side of it, beyond what we could endure. Why? He says there in, in verse 9, so that we might not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now here's the interesting thing. That phrase in verse 8, burdened excessively beyond our strength, is the exact same phrase in the Greek that's used back here in 2 Corinthians 8, that they gave beyond their power or ability. So in other words, there was a line of, of what they could give that made sense. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Where the math made sense, and you could you know, see the end of the month maybe, as we would say, and you, you're going to get there. And God had them give beyond it. I mean, this was a people who were engaged in what God was doing. But it happened because, going back up to that first verse, there was a grace of God that was bestowed upon them. There was a work of God that happened. You see, it, we, we've got to stack the wood, right? We teach the Word and we faithfully equip the, the catechisms, all those things. But at some point, it's got to be lit on fire. The Spirit of God has to quicken our understanding. And so one of the things I want to encourage is, I think sometimes we're afraid to pray certain things because we see the excesses. But here's the reality, and I said it when I prayed as I started out this morning, every good and perfect gift comes from where? From God. And so we, a lot of times we're simply not asking God to do things like that. I, I, I mentioned being in Scotland. I stood in Kilsyth, Scotland, at the Kirk uh, in Kilsyth. And it was where uh, James Robe in the 1700s was preaching on a Sunday morning. And in the middle of his message, God moved so incredibly that the people just, much like it happened with Jonathan Edwards when he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, people just began to cry out. And it grew so loud that he couldn't preach anymore because they were louder than he was, the conviction. And uh, he began to send men out uh, to, to get neighboring preachers to bring them in because, because God was moving so powerfully. And James Robes said something that was very profound. He said, if, if I know that revival or a movement of God like that advances the kingdom, exalts the name of Christ brings Christians into a deeper love with their Savior 
and draws lost to him. He said, how can I ask God for anything less? Now, acknowledging that it is in God's hands, right? That God is sovereign over it. But how can it... And by the way, just a little side here on the issue of prayer. Do you know God will set you praying often for things you won't see in your lifetime? Have you ever thought about that? First of all, remember something. Prayers don't die when people do, right? Uh, One man said this, that when we obey God, we may be answering a prayer that was prayed 100 years ago. Uh, Prayers don't die when people do, but often God will set you praying for things that you won't see in your lifetime because where your treasure is, what's there? Your heart. And what you begin to pray for, when you begin to pray for God to be glorified and for revival to come and to move in your church, it is putting your heart in heaven and it's locking it in. And, uh, you know, our founder of the ministry I'm a part of prayed. He died at the age of 42 of a brain tumor, left behind a wife and five children. Uh, Dell prayed desperately to see revival in, in the church in America, uh, awakening, spiritual awakening. He never saw it in his lifetime. But his prayers didn't die when he died. I believe God said him praying for that. So the starting point is this, the issue of humility, acknowledging God. We need you. <laughs> Listen, the acceptance of status quo is, is a form of pride. That I'm content to live without Christ being exalted the way that He should be exalted. And so the beginning place is a humility. Now let me say a few things about humility. First of all, Scripture is very clear. Now, and we're acknowledging here that we're always working in response to God. And so anything I say here, understand I believe that. Anything that happens is always, we are always responding to God. Uh, it's not us initiating ever. But um, humility, Scripture never says, and, and we pray this prayer often, Lord, humble me. Lord, make me humble. Scripture never says that. In fact, what does Scripture say? God says, humble yourselves. Because when God humbles you, He does a very thorough job of it, right? And so that's why God's commanding us constantly to humble ourselves. So the starting point is this acknowledgement of need. God, it, it, I call it a holy discontent. And, and by the way, it is a passion that has driven the men and women of God throughout history. I mean, it's John Knox. God, give me Scotland or I'll die. It's that sense of desperation. God, if you don't come in, if you don't do something, you know, why do people, you know, the the title of this session was moving from the sidelines to the front line. Why are people on the sidelines? Either one, because they're lost, not truly regenerated, or two, because they've lost their passion. (laughs) They've lost a vision for who He is and His worthiness. And so the only thing that's going to restore that is that wood, that faithful preaching being lit on fire. (laughs) in their understanding. So that's where we begin by acknowledgement, humbling ourselves. God, if it's not you, if you don't move, it won't happen. And and by the way, these are principles we've seen over the years as God began to move. The second one uh, is a a logical progression. When you begin to get desperate, where do you turn? Now there's not a verse there because it's really a theme all through Scripture. But I want you to look at something. Turn to um, Matthew 26. 
You know, Paul said in Galatians six, or uh, Ephesians 6 that uh, we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, spiritual forces, and the high places. So, so our battles, although they can seem to be against elders or people who are not happy with you in the church or whatever, that's not where our battles lay, although we feel like sometimes that's the only place we seem to battle. Um, but I, I want to illustrate this to so you. Look in the beginning of verse 36. It said, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that, that inner group of three there, James and John, and, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now, two quick things there. Remember something. First of all, Jesus does not exaggerate. Okay? It, you know, we might say, man, I'm so tired I could die. Jesus doesn't do that. When he is saying, I'm grieving to the point of death, he's being literal. That physiologically, the grief he was carrying was bringing him near to the point of physical death. I, I had a man in one of the meetings I was in who knocked on our trailer door and um, opened it up, and it was a police officer in the church we were at. And uh, he said, I wanted your kids to meet my dog. His, his canine. And so it's a beautiful German shepherd. And my kids filed out of the trailer and I got around this dog and was petting. It was just a beautiful dog. And he turned to me and said, now you can't pet it because he, uh, she has to attack men and I don't want her to getting used to men. I said, well, that's fine with me. You know, I'll keep my distance. And they were petting and he, was, he began describing to me uh, the intensity of this relationship he had with this dog. And he said, you know, I've raised it since it was a puppy. Uh, there's a loyalty there, a protection there. This dog would give its life for me. You know, and they, he just, the bond was incredible as he described it. And then he said this. He said, in fact, my last dog, he said, we went on a family vacation. I put it with one of my fellow officers to board with his dog while we were gone. He said, the second day we were gone, my dog curled up on the ground and died. He said, it literally grieved to death. Now, that, I know that's kind of a crude illustration when we're talking about our Savior, but understand something. When Jesus says, I'm grieving to the point of death, he's being literal. And then secondly, notice he says, I'm not fearing to the point of death. I am grieving to the point of death. Because although Jesus suffered immensely physically on the cross, we know the greatest suffering was that he who knew no sin was about to become sin, to undergo the wrath of God for sin. And so just that realization in Jesus' mind and understanding of what he was about to endure brought such an intense physical grief upon him that he said, I am almost dying at this point. And we know he would later shed drops of blood as he prayed. It was that intense. So that's the context then that Jesus asked these three men to pray. Stay here and watch. Pray for me. By the way, isn't it interesting that Jesus, the Son of God, coveted people praying for him. I mean, I don't know if that, that, that's kind of almost beyond my understanding, but it, it, it is beyond my understanding. But the Son of God wanted earthly men praying for him. That, that's hard for me to grasp, but he says that. Would you stay here and pray for me? Now, you know what happens. Jesus goes off. He prays, Father, not, uh, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He comes back and he finds them sleeping. And, and notice in verse 40, he came to his disciples, found them sleeping, and he said to who? Who is it? Peter. Peter. 
Now, of course, Peter, the acknowledged head of the disciples, every list in the New Testament that gives the disciples puts Peter at the front. And the wording in those lists, by the way, is, is first of importance, that uh, Peter is acknowledged as the head. So Jesus comes back. There are three men sleeping, but he looks directly at Peter, he calls him by name, and he says, um, Peter, so you could not keep watch with me for one hour, is verse 40. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So then he goes back to prayer. Not my will, but thine be done. He comes back. They're sleeping again. He goes a third time. He comes back, and again they're sleeping. So if you pick up in verse 45, he says, Then we came, he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now look at verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus... Now again, interestingly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of discreet and say, yeah, you know, one of the disciples <laughs> pulls out a sword and whacks off the high priest's servant ear. John, on the other hand, says, yeah, it was Peter. You know, <laughs> Peter's always doing that kind of thing. And so it says, behold, one of those who with reached in drew out a sword. And you know, again, that word for sword is a small thing, something Peter had hidden. And, uh, and struck this, the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, you know, of course, he wasn't aiming for the ear, right? <laughs> He was aiming for the head and caught the ear. And uh, look at verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. So Jesus rebukes Peter. He tells him, Put the sword back. Now, I believe something very strongly. In fact, I preach on this often. I don't have time now. But verse 52, 53, and 54, Jesus makes three statements. And I really believe understanding those three statements is contingent about understanding this truth about what just happened. And I want you to think about this. When Jesus came back and the men were sleeping, again, who, whose name did he call out? He called out Peter's. This is why. In Peter's mind, the, the battle they were fighting was against those men. Think about something. The thing Jesus wanted Peter to do, he didn't do. What was that? Pray. The thing Jesus did not want Peter to do, he did. What was that? <laughs> Pulled out the sword and swung it. Because in Peter's mind, the battle was right there in front of him. It was flesh and blood. It was these people. In Jesus' understanding, the battle had already been fought in prayer. You see that? And then that puts into context those next three statements, which I'll have time to go through. But understand something. The spiritual battles that we fight are fought in prayer. Now, I think the, probably the hardest thing we do as a church, as leaders in churches, is motivate our people to pray. Because prayer is work. First of all, it, it, it's, it's a learning process. But two, it, it's interesting to me that the two, two areas that should be in the Christian life, two of the most joyful Praying and giving 
are for most Christians the most frustrating. You know, for most Christians, prayer is trying to convince God to do something they're not sure He wants to do anyway. And that is just burdensome. You know, even Spurgeon said sometimes when he was praying, when he inserted that phrase, if it be thy will, he he admitted, he said, sometimes it just seems to suck life out of me to say that. Now, just a, a little sophism here, a little helpful thing. Remember, prayer is not about getting my will done in heaven. It's about getting God's will done on earth, right? So that's the nature of true prayer. It's not me getting my God to do what I want. It's getting God or getting in on what God's heart is, what He's trying to accomplish. He sets us praying, and we begin to pray in accordance with that. But there, there's a reason why every great movement of God in history, though the preaching styles were different, the music was different, theologically there were variations, but the constant was always been prayer, that God will set His people praying. So we begin by, we see our need, acknowledge our need, and, and I would actually add there uh, the term extraordinary praying. <laughs> because one of the things that begins to happen, particularly in revival, is that, for lack of a better term, there's a spirit of prayer that often comes upon God's people. Just a, He begins to wake them in the night to pray. There begins to be a, a deep passion in their praying, a longing in their praying. It's just an extraordinary thing that God does. Now, just being honest with you, humanly speaking, if, if there is any hope in a situation that I can solve it or resolve it or find an answer to something, I tend not to pray. That's just human nature. I mean, if I, if I think I've got connections or finances or so, and I can solve an issue, I will tend not to pray. What happens then is what drives us to prayer are the things that get out of our hands. Yeah, and usually it's physical sickness or financial pressures or pressures in ministry or whatever they are, and they drive us to the prayer. The problem is, because we're not praying along the way, when the big, thing come, big things come, we don't know how to pray. And isn't that exactly what James said? You have not, why? Yes, not. You're not praying. Then when the big things come, you ask wrongly or amiss that you may consume it upon your own lusts. So what happens is because we're not praying day to day about everything, we're, we're kind of self-sufficient, we've learned how to solve problems, then when we have to pray, we don't know how to pray and we pray wrongly and we don't get our prayers answered because we're praying selfishly out of selfish motivations. And so that's why it's essential building prayer. And, and here's, the, here's the good news for you. Historically, works of God and movements of God don't start with whole congregations they start with a small pocket or even an individual with a burden to see God glorified. And get, that person will usually be set about praying. And what God will do is He'll begin to expand it as people begin to pray. You know, I was talking with a, a Baptist pastor from Georgia who, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movies, uh, Courageous and Fireproof. Uh, their church, he's, he's become a friend of mine, and their church made these movies. And he told me something interesting. He said, people come up to me all the time and they say, uh, how can our church make movies like your church? And um, he said, you need to understand something. He said, the first five years I was in my church, and these are just his words, he said, were hell on earth. He said, uh, there was a revolt. He said, my two prayer partners turned on me, tried to force me out of the church. 
He said we lost 800 people who, who filtered out. Uh, he said it was, it was, it was my five of my worst years of ministry in all my years of ministry. He said, but then we began as a church to seek to learn how to pray and saying, as the disciples did, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, as we began to develop prayer, as a, and by the way, I, I preached there recently, uh, before I got up to preach for the 45 minutes leading up to the service, 150 people were at the altar praying for me. Uh, reminds me of what Spurgeon used to have down in the basement, you know, those men praying. Uh, it is one of the most enjoyable, and I know that's probably not the best word, enjoyable places I preach. Because they are just soaking in the Word and hungry. And he said, so we began to learn to pray as a church. He said, then we began to pray this prayer. It was just something that God laid on our hearts. God, we want, how can we impact the world from Albany, Georgia? Now, if you know anything about Albany, Georgia, you cannot get there unless you're trying to get there. Because there are no interstates that run through it. And it's a depressed area. It's with the third poorest county in Georgia. And, uh, and there's racial tension. It's, the, uh, it's said to be the only place, considered to be the only place Martin Luther King Jr. ever failed. And what he tried to do is Albany, Georgia. That's why you don't hear about it historically, like you do Selma and some of the other places. And so they said, Lord, how can we impact the world from Albany, Georgia? And they began to pray that prayer as a church. Then Alex Kendrick sat down with Michael one day and said, Michael, I have this idea about making movies. I think I'm going to have to leave the church you know, and go somewhere where I can do that. And Michael said, well, why? Let's do it here. And so they started on a low scale, and they're getting better as they go along and technically better and, and those kinds of things. But this is what he said. He, he said, everybody wants to know how to make movies. Nobody wants to go through the first part <laughs> where you go through the trial, and it drives you to your knees, and you begin to cry out to God, and then you begin to see God stirring your people in an unusual way. And, and I believe something. Crawford Luritz in his book on leadership points out that when God called men to leadership, or called men in, in, throughout Scripture, He doesn't call them to a position. He calls them to a task. Now that task may involve a position, but you'll find that God doesn't call men to take positions. He calls them to a task. And I really believe something. You know, we obviously have the commanded tasks of the church, but I believe that every church has a unique task in a sense, based on where you are, the culture you're in, and, and who God wants you to, to reach. And, and that, that task is there whether you are a church of 2,000 or a church of 20. And whatever your resources are, God has called you to a specific task. So I, there's so much more I could say because this is my heartbeat. I, I teach on prayer, and I'll talk a little more probably about it. Thirdly, prayer then leads to confession and repentance. It, it, it is an amazing thing to watch when God begins to move among a people. And the first thing that he begins to do is re reorient them. You know, I tell people at this stage of my life, uh, I have a ministry of what I call paradigm shift. Uh, I know a man who was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and uh, he had a very dangerous assignment. He was to fly over after bombing raids in his helicopter at a low altitude and uh, assess the damage. And as you can imagine, it's a dangerous assignment. It's a little bit like having somebody run by a hornet's nest, whack it with a stick, and your job is to stroll up to it afterwards to assess the damage. 
And uh, he said on one of his missions, as he was flying at low altitude, he began to take ground fire. And he said bullets ripped through, heavy caliber bullets, to the inside of the helicopter, jarred it, struck, one struck him in the leg. He said it threw the whole helicopter sideways, threw him to the side violently. He said he, he kind of crashed against the side, and he said, I sat up and straightened up quickly. And he said, I opened my eyes, and he said, everything was black. He said, I couldn't see. And he said, I thought to myself, I'm dead. And he said his co-pilot reached over and took his helmet and turned it around <laughs> so he could see. So really, in a sense, I think that's the ministry God's called me to at this phase of life is to kind of turn the helmet around. So, well, that's what God does when, when he begins to move in a people is he reorients them. And they begin to see things clearly. They begin to see their life clearly, his glory, uh, their sin. Uh, I was preaching in a church in New Mexico and, and this, 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 I want to give this as an encouragement to you just to begin to ask God. Again, we're not looking for experience, but we're looking for Christ to be magnified, right? To be exalted. Uh, I was preaching, and, and I don't know if you've had one of these days where you never stop moving, but you feel like at the end of the day you haven't got anything done. It was just one of those days. I mean, I just nonstop. And it was about an hour before the service, and our team was there. I was preparing to preach. And I got alone in a room in the church to just begin to clear my mind and heart and prepare myself. Well, for the next 45 minutes, interruption after interruption, people walking in the room. One of the guys underneath me who was working with the youth came in, burdened. And, you know, he said, this is the hardest group I've ever worked with. They laugh. They mock. They have no heart for spiritual things. So he, I talked him through some issues. By the time it was all said and done, it was about five minutes before the service. And, and I thought, man, I, this whole point was to get my mind and heart prepared to, to preach. And now I'm just, you know, and I felt a little angry, honestly, that I'd been robbed of the time. And I got back on my knees and began to apologize to God, you know, and, and felt, you know, just... And by the way, we have such a tendency to beat ourselves up as though it's going to earn favor with God. Uh, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And, and that verse came to mind, and I just said, Lord, uh, I need you tonight. And, uh, and it, it's, it's an unusual thing, um, and I don't want to sound mystical here, but just an, a deep impression that God was going to do something unusual. And I knew God was moving. That night I was preaching from Isaiah 6 on the holiness of God. I knew God was moving because during the worship time, during holy, 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 the senior adults, which all were sitting to my right, went to their knees during the singing. And uh, then I began to preach, and as I got about halfway through the message, just again preaching from Isaiah 6, and, and an unusual thing began to happen. The youth were sitting to my left, and they were the, literally the hardest group we had had that whole year. And I began to, when I would make a point, I'd hear two things. There were a few amens but I would hear this sound, and it was like, huh, huh. It literally sounded like somebody being punched in the stomach. And I remember at a point looking over and seeing that entire section with, of kids with their faces and their hands laying on the pews in front of them. Just, I mean, it, it, just a wave of conviction of sin swept through that room. Now, I don't know if you can do this. I have this ability to preach and carry on a secondary conversation. <laughs> in the back of my head. I don't know if you can do that. Spurgeon said he could have eight lines of thought running at any one time. I, I have no clue how that happens. But I'm, I'm preaching, and in the back of my head I'm going, God, what do I do here? What do I do here? You know, because I don't want to touch the ark. Uh, you're doing something unusual here. And, and I stopped my message, 
and finally at a point, and I gave probably the most politically, now we have in Life Action, we have invitations, but not to the front. What we have is a prayer room. And we simply say, if God has spoken to your heart during this message, go to the prayer room and get alone with Him and let the Spirit, you know, continue the process. And, um, but I, I gave probably the most politically incorrect invitation I've ever given. I just stopped and I said, you know what? I said, many of you in this room are hypocrites. I said, many of you young people, you're here because your parents are making you for no other reason. I said, many of you in this room are claiming one thing when you show up in church, but you're living something else out of it. And I just said, you need to repent of that. And this entire section <laughs> went to the prayer room. I'm just in mass. This, we ended the service 45 minutes later. It was an amazing thing to watch. There's you know, a lady sitting in the middle just staring straight ahead and the pastor talking to her. Uh, I had team members coming up to me saying, Mark, you should hear it in the prayer room. Just the weeping, and it's the same thing. Oh, God, forgive me, I'm a hypocrite. Forgive me, I'm a hypocrite. I watched a young man and his dad over to the side, and he was just weeping, and his dad was embracing him. And he's saying, Dad, I don't want to live this way. I want to be honor God. I want to be right with God. I had a man walk up to me after the service and say, Mark, God told me tonight that if I didn't repent and confess my adultery against my wife, that I would die. Now, I didn't say anything like that. <laughs> but again, the Spirit of God moved in, bringing that conviction. One of the things, I, I, one of the reasons I say I'm honored to be a part of Life Action Ministries, I, I talked about life change, is for this reason, uh, one of the experiences I had for years traveling, and again, we had a semi-truck and buses, is people would see our truck, which had our logo on it, they would follow us into rest areas on the interstate. They'd follow us into restaurants and come up to me and say, I just want you to know that 15 years ago, God saved my marriage in me. Ten years ago, God saved me. I was a deacon in the church, and I got saved. You know, those kinds of statements. Well, that's what we want. We want life change that, that sets the whole course. Easter before last, I was in a church, and somebody somehow during a greeting time found out that I was with Life Action and he and his wife came directly up to me and said, I want you to know that in 1989, we were on the verge of divorce. God restored our marriage in, in one of your meetings. And I mean, that thrilled me because that's a work. That's not life action. That's a work God does. He restores and rebuilds. So confession and repentance, godly sorrow is what you begin to pray for. Number four, reconciliation. Uh, we're kind of running out of time here. but I was in Salina, Texas recently. And um, within the church I was in, there was, you know, it's, it's a small town that Dallas is growing out into. And almost the entire school board for the town attended this church. And what they had done is they had made a decision not to renew the contract of one of the principals in town who also, she and her family, attended the church. So, and you guys know what that's like in a church when families go after each other and some of you can come and you know what it's like to come into a church and those things have been going on for 35 years you know and so what had happened this was about five eight years ago somewhere in there that this had all transpired but this this division had been in the church between those who were offended with her and those who said well she needs to get over it it was a business decision but they were trying to go to church together but it was just this constant turmoil and the pastor had told me he said I've been trying to on some level resolve this for my entire tenure here and he said it's just it's always there it's always there 
Well, well, it was really incredible. Again, it was only God could do because I never preached on it. But God broke into the people involved's lives. And there was a night at a service they asked if they could speak, and the whole group, both sides, stood together up front, <laughs> publicly sought the church's forgiveness, publicly sought each other's forgiveness. And you know in a town, those kind of issues filter through the town. And so word started getting around town that everybody had reconciled. And you know what? Again, you have not because you asked not. Begin to, if you have those issues, begin to ask God because that is one of the most powerful, powerful glorifications or works that God does that glorifies Christ is reconciliation in the body. And that's one of the things that happens in revival. That's one of the things we teach on. And then finally, restitution. Restitution. Um, that's also an exciting thing when God begins to move to watch people do that. When I was, I mentioned being in Edinburgh, uh, I met a man named Sinclair Horn. And uh, he's gone home to be with the Lord now, but Sinclair Horn was the pastor of the Magdalene Chapel there in Edinburgh, which is where John Knox actually signed the Articles of Faith he had there. And he, he showed me where he sat, you know, in the table and everything where he had signed those documents. And, and Sinclair Horn and I talked about revival together. And he said he grew up in a fishing village in Ireland. And he said, one of my earliest memories, there was a revival in the 1920s that God sent to those fishing villages. And he described how, as a, about a five-year-old boy, he stood along a dirt roadside that led down to the docks, holding his father's hand, and he said people lined both sides of this road. And he said these dock workers in mass, you know, 100, 150 of these men, came marching down this road together singing hymns. And each of them carried in their hands tools that they had stolen over the years. And they sang as they went down to the docks and dropped these tools into piles. He said there were so many they had to begin building sheds to put all these tools in. Uh, I was preaching in Mountain Lake, Minnesota. I don't know if anybody here is from Minnesota, which is an interesting place because there's no mountain and no lake. Uh, <laughs> false advertising, I think. But uh, one morning, one of our young ladies on our team walked into a local grocery store, and the store manager just descended on her, grabbed her by the arm, and said, what is going on at the church? Now, this was, this was interesting. We were brought in by 12 churches, 10 Mennonite churches, one Assembly of God, and one Christian Missionary Alliance church. And uh, so it's it very unique. In fact, a lot of the older people still spoke German, you know, the, the older... And, uh, but he grabbed her by the arm. He said, what is going on at the church? She said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't understand. He said, what is happening over there? He said, I've had three people come in here this morning, ask my forgiveness for shoplifting in the past, and pay me money. He said, what is going on over there? And you think that had an impact on his life? I'll tell you what it did. By the end of the first week in a town of 2,000, we had over 800 people a night coming out. Because word got around town that Christians were getting right with each other. So this is why, you know, I hope you didn't come in today. Uh, I want to open it up for questions if you have any. But I hope you didn't come in today, you know, with five, hoping for five steps <laughs> to get your people motivated. What I want to do is cast to you the idea of beginning to ask God to do an unusual work in your church for His glory. Because when the Spirit of God works, He always magnifies Christ. And so 
don't be afraid to ask God for that. To ask God to do something unusual. As Jonathan Edwards said, for an extraordinary work. And, and again, you look historically, the great mission organizations, the great social ministries, all those things were born out of revival, out of great awakenings. Now we are um, well over a hundred years in America since we have seen a sweeping revival. And part of, the, part of my concern is that there is such a, uh, a low level theologically that I wonder sometimes could we even sustain a revival. But if there is any place you probably could, it's with you guys. And, uh, and so begin to ask God to, to do a work, to pray for revival. But to, to do a work, do something. Listen, the greatest motivation to prayer is answered prayer. And when your people begin to see God answer prayer, it, there's something that gets stirred in them. And they begin, you know, faith begets faith in a sense. And, and we know faith can only exist within the sphere of God's will. We can only exercise faith within God's will. But when people begin to see God work like that, there's something that gets stirred in them. And uh, honestly... I was telling somebody this yesterday, most, because I teach on prayer and I teach on intercessory prayer, most prayer people I meet are kind of wacky. Uh, remember, prayer without the Bible will produce emotionalism. And now the Bible without prayer will kind of produce dogmatism and dryness. You, you need the balance of both. And for most of us, when I ask people this question, how many of you is it easier to pray than read the Bible? Or read the Bible than pray? Probably two-thirds of people will, will say it's easier for me to read the Bible. Um, because that's, that's where we gravitate to. And so we, we tend to kind of throw prayer in on top of things. But prayer, in a sense, is what ignites the wood of our preaching and what brings the people stirred to the forefront, like the Macedonians, who gave just beyond. Now, this wasn't systematic giving they did. This was a stirring of God where they gave unexplainably. So much so that God records them, and Paul just marvels at, at the extraordinary giving they did. So begin to ask God to raise up prayer warriors. You should have, if you're in ministry, you should have a, at least a couple of little old ladies in your church who are praying for you. And you should go to them and you should tell them, this is how you can be praying for me. Uh, don't despise the little old ladies. They're the prayer power of the church often. Thank you, guys. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces. Gifts and Graces.